The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Amy Doning, is co-founder and medical director of the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center in Spokane, Washington. She's a professor at Texas Tech Health Science Center's School of Nursing, and she's here today to talk about her new book, co-authored with Dr. Bradley Bale, Beat the Heart Attack Gene, the Revolutionary Plan to Prevent Heart Disease, Stroke, and Diabetes. Welcome to Health Watch, Amy Doning. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So one of the the first takeaway messages from Beat the Heart Attack Gene is that our listeners could be out there thinking that they are at low risk for heart attacks and strokes because they have normal blood pressure and normal cholesterol. But in fact, some of them could be at very high risk for those uh, for those conditions, even with those normal values. Can you explain that a little bit? I sure can. Yeah, and and you're exactly right. We oftentimes the standard of care, which is what the current medical system is founded upon is so heavily based on cholesterol management and blood pressure management, which is one aspect of of a much bigger um, pie, if you will, that that causes plaque growth in the walls of the artery. So um, people who are even treated for cholesterol and blood pressure still may find themselves at risk for a vascular event, whether it be a heart attack or an ischemic stroke. What we aim to um, demonstrate in this book is, is um, this book is aimed at the public. And we talk about what are the, we call the root causes of vascular disease. There's lots of reasons why we develop plaque in the walls of the arteries. Cholesterol is one of them. Blood pressure is one of them. But other things like periodontal disease, obstructive sleep apnea, psychosocial issues, Yes, lifestyle factors as well, nicotine, genetically driven factors um, also can drive plaque growth. So understanding what the root causes are really allow us to know our true risk for the development of plaque and places at risk for heart attack or stroke. Well, it's really interesting, Amy, the section you have about red flags, the things that could put you at more risk for heart attacks and strokes, some of which people probably don't know about if you have psoriasis, if you get frequent migraines, if you have a vitamin D deficiency. But what what are some of the ones that you would rank near the top of red flags that are not cholesterol and blood pressure? Yeah, so red flags don't um, always have a direct cause and effect, meaning if we correct the red flag, it doesn't mean your risk is going to completely go away. Um, But red flags definitely have the data to support there's an association, that if you have one of these things, there's data to support that you have an elevated risk for the development of of a potential heart attack or stroke. So the red flags that are most causative and the most concerning are those that create an inflammatory backdrop in our arterial system. So things like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, which you mentioned. For women, um, women have a lot of clues um, that are often ignored, sadly. Things like um, hypertension during pregnancy or even that continuing and and you get a condition called preeclampsia, polycystic ovarian syndrome, gestational diabetes, migraine with aura, um, on, on medical history. All of those are, are, yes, what we call red flags. And if anyone has any of those, they should consider themselves potentially at risk and they should get a full assessment. And a full assessment meaning not just a cholesterol, blood sugar, and blood pressure uh, 
assessment, but you actually suggest quite a few other tests that are less commonly uh, prescribed. We do. So the approach that we discuss in the book is really a three sort of a, um, a three aspect approach. So the first thing is to find out if you have. Um, plaque or inflammation in the wall of the artery. And there's tests that we talk about in the book. One that is is kind of a workhorse tool for us is called the carotid intima media thickness test. And this test is an ultrasound test. It's very safe. It's been around for a long time. It's been backed by the American Heart Association since 2001 as a safe, reliable, reproducible test that looks at the wall of the artery for the presence or absence of plaque. Um, that's a test that can be done on anyone from a very young age all the way up to an older age to say you may feel fine, but your body may silently um, be depositing plaque or fatty streaks in the wall of the artery. So that's one test. There's some others we talk about in the book, too. And the cost of these tests, um, David, that I think a lot of people need to hear this out loud, is that they're not expensive. These tests are usually under $200. The lab tests are pennies, um, you know, $20 oftentimes. The genetic tests are very inexpensive. When you consider the cost of a heart attack is upwards of $500,000 when you consider loss of job productivity and so forth, and that's assuming you live through it. So these tests are extremely cost-effective. So starting out with the idea of I want to know if I have plaque, and not just looking at where blood flows, um, the lumen, if you will, of the artery, but looking at the wall, and this carotid ultrasound is one way, and there are others, but that's one way to do it. The other tests that we talk about a lot in the book are inflammatory tests. So there's um, tests that can be done, and they're very simple. They're blood tests and a couple of urine tests that are pretty much done at any lab in the country. You just need to know what to ask for. So if you've already had a heart attack, already had a stroke, or perhaps you have some red flags or a family history, and you want to know if your treatment is working or if you are at risk, get your inflammatory tests checked. You shouldn't have any inflammation in the in your arterial system at all, because if you have inflammation, that um, precedes you to grow plaque in the arteries, and it can be very scary because it can cause a unannounced plaque rupture and subsequent blood clot, which ultimately is what causes a heart attack or stroke. And then the other tests that we talk about in the book are testing that's required to find out what truly are your root causes um, that may place you at risk for the development of disease. You mentioned one, vitamin D deficiency. Um, your show is based out of Portland, Oregon, and um, the reality is a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest are vitamin D deficient. There's enough data now to suggest that that is a player in the development of vascular inflammation and vascular disease. Um, getting tested for obstructive sleep apnea, getting tested for unaddressed anxiety, getting bacterial testing to know if you have pathogens that can cause gum inflammation in our mouth that also cross over to vascular inflammation, et cetera. So we talk about that in the book, and they all go beyond the current cholesterol panel, which is important, but it, it, it's not all-inclusive. So, Amy, before we get into some of the nutritional lifestyle and, and medication interventions, uh, I just want, had one question about the disconnect between this information and what people get when they go to see their doctor. For instance, you mentioned that waist circumference is more important predictor of heart disease risk than our weight itself, something that could be very simply measured in a doctor's office, but instead they're still measuring weight. And some of these cheap tests that you mentioned 
are not uh, hard to order, but yet we're still sticking with a, a outdated system of, of risk assessment. Why, why do you think that is? Well, um, let me address the waste issue, and then uh, I think I want to talk about the why. But, um, you know, one of the most prominent root causes is something called insulin resistance. Um, it claims responsibility for about 70% of plaque growth in the wall of the artery and claims responsibility of about 70% of vascular inflammation. And sadly, the current system, um, medicine as it sets up now, really is, is driven to treat end-stage disease. So the end-stage disease of insulin resistance is called type 2 diabetes. So when um, insulin resistance has gone on for about 20 years um, and someone becomes actually a type 2 diabetes, diabetic, then they get all kinds of treatment. But the problem is during that 20-year path towards type 2 diabetes, the condition of insulin resistance is extremely inflammatory for the walls of the artery. So what we talk about in the book are ways to find that early. One of them is, is what you mentioned, grabbing a waist measurement. If you can diagnose a condition called metabolic syndrome, which includes this elevated waist measurement, and for women, a waist over 35 inches, doesn't matter how tall or how short you are, over 35 inches is a point towards a criteria called metabolic syndrome. And for men, it's over 40 inches. What's not included on the criteria is weight, uh, body mass index, but waste is. And in the current system, <clears throat> that's not part of a formal workup. So that's a very cheap tool and a very life-saving tool. If you carry the dangerous fat or adipose cells around the middle, it places you at risk for insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. So thank you for bringing that up. That's a very cost-effective tool and should be part of a normal standard workup. So let's go on to, to diet and exercise and lifestyle choices. Uh, where, do you, where do you see them fit in in comparison to medications? I know it's not an either-or, but w how would you rank them in terms of their uh, ability to change risk factors? Well, I think lifestyle is number one. I think there's no medicine that can get to um, what an optimal lifestyle can reach. Um, sadly, because this is a very genetically driven disease state and once plaque is already formed in the artery wall, oftentimes we do need to augment a lifestyle with some medication therapy, that's true. But lifestyle is definitely the most effective approach to treat vascular disease without. So, so could you mention some of the more, um, sure. more effective lifestyle interventions? Sure. Um, one thing I want to make note of is we guide our lifestyle advice based on our genetic um, predisposition. So we talk about a gene in the book called the APOE gene, which is very inexpensive and easy to get. The APOE gene is found on chromosome 19. It's very well studied, and there's certain um, alleles to this gene, so you're going to inherit um, one from your mom and one from your dad. So depending on your APOE status, we can predetermine how you're going to process things like fats, carbohydrates, um, uh, sugars and alcohol, for example, how your body's going to respond to exercise. 
So when we offer lifestyle advice, we base it on our genetic makeup, allowing us to get to the unique individual needs of the patient. And that's really important because a lot of people that have spent a lifetime of trying to make excellent choices, and yet their laboratory results or um, clinical results haven't demonstrated the effectiveness of their um, lifestyle approaches, maybe it's because they're not doing quite the right thing based on their genetic makeup. Some people we want having a glass of wine every day or a glass of alcohol every day. Some people we don't. Some people we want on a higher fat diet, a lower fat diet. Some people won't get their lipids to turn around with even daily good exercise. Some people get a great response to exercise. It doesn't mean that exercise isn't important every single day regardless, but we gauge the benefit of it differently than just looking at cholesterol. That that was one of the more fascinating parts of the book was that we could actually figure out why some people thrive on a low-carb, high-fat diet and others on the reverse. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating because when you look at these diet trends out there, and, and some are very good, some work great for some people, and, and the next person can do the same thing and they don't get the benefit, and, and we think, gosh, are they doing something wrong or whatever. No, um, the, the, the problem is we are all unique, and, and yet a mass diet will not work for every person in the same way. So understanding our genetics, and again, the test is about $20, and you never have to repeat it. It's a very inexpensive test. And the technology, though, and the science surrounding something like APOE continues to grow. Scientists are continuing to look at APOE gene, among others we talk about in the book. So even though you may only need it tested once, we are learning more and more every day about how to fine-tune advice and lifestyle treatment based on that knowledge that we have. So I think that's the best way to, to go with lifestyle advice, and it also makes sense why some people will respond to different, differently to different diet mechanisms. But certainly there are some things that uh, probably everybody should do. For instance, you mentioned flossing twice a day, seeing your dentist Mm -hmm. more regularly, um, and I'm imagining avoiding sugary drinks, which seem to have quite a, a link to heart attack and stroke risk. Right. So just some really safe global pieces of advice are those. I love that you said that. So, yes, flossing twice a day, going to the dentist more frequently um, to keep the inflammation down, um, listening to to music you enjoy, sleeping well, um, exercising every day, at least 22 minutes a day of some sort of cardiovascular exercise and intertwine a couple days a week of some good um, resistant type training as well. Um, Also getting adequate fruits and vegetables in your diet, um, good fish on a regular basis if you're not a vegan or vegetarian seems to be like, uh, seems to be pretty good advice across the board. Um, So there are some good, sound lifestyle pieces that seem to affect everyone in a very good way. So, Amy, in our final few minutes, I would love to talk about the supplements to avoid and the ones that seem most beneficial to help treat or, or prevent heart disease. It was a very fascinating part of the book. Wonderful. So there are supplements that we do think have merit, um, and we're very evidence-based. The back of the book has 
about 60 pages of full resources there. So it's an evidence-based um, method. So some of the supplements that have really um, shown excellent data include, believe it or not, dark chocolate. So dark chocolate, if it's 72% or greater in its um, cocoa content um, at 7 grams per day, actually reduces stroke and heart attack risk and also mitigate some of the inflammation <clears throat> post-meals from high sugars for those people who are insulin resistant. So we do recommend dark chocolate. The darker, the better. Um, coffee has some great data to reduce AFib and also has good cardiovascular uh, data. Omega-3 fatty acid, which is um, fish oil, and, and certainly if you can get that through eating whole fish, that's a wonderful way to go. Or um, we do recommend fish oil, omega-3 supplements as well. Um, some supplements um, we don't recommend um, specifically for cardiovascular health. Um, one that um, we, we don't recommend anymore is called L-carnitine. We used to recommend that for people who had a genetically um, inherited lipid abnormality called lipoprotein A, and, and data came out about six months ago suggesting unless you were doing a true vegan type diet that recommending L-carnitine was not uh, the way to go, and that was some of Stan Hazen's work. So we certainly follow the data as it comes out, and uh, what I like to do is have my patients bring in everything in their medicine cabinet. I'm very objective and evidence-based, so we'll look at the data and determine if it's a good move or, or not such a good move. Some supplements are benign, and they're not going to be harmful at all, which is great. Um, some have some data that's pretty exciting, and some have some data that seems a bit counterintuitive. So, um, can you talk uh, a little bit about be... calcium since so many people are on it for bone health yeah. and, and it's so, starting to show some disturbing information? Yeah, that's a trouble, isn't it? So, calcium supplementation um, started to show some data a couple years ago suggesting that the supplements had an increased risk of um, heart attacks in, in women, actually, in the supplement supplements at 500 milligrams or greater per day showed an increase of coronary um, calcification, and also it teased out to even show event rate elevation. Um, it does not mean, though, that people should not get calcium. The authors of the research, and we would recommend as well, David, that people who especially have osteopenia, which is bone thinning, or osteoporosis, which is bone loss, still need adequate calcium, you know, about 1,200 milligrams a day minimum, but perhaps really challenge your daily diet and get your nutrients of calcium and other vital nutrients through a whole diet. That's really our recommendation because what we're finding even with calcium and even the antioxidants um, published in work years ago, that they really don't pan out for the health benefit if taken in supplement form. Not all of them, but, but a lot of them. So we re really recommend getting all of our nutrients if we can through a whole diet. So it sounds like vitamin D might be the one exception in that, in that regard, also partially because it's hard to get in the diet. Yeah, that's right, and I didn't mention that, and thank you for bringing it up. Vitamin D is something very common. Uh, we do measure for levels, and we're finding so many people are low, and we do supplement with vitamin D3 actually over-the-counter, and a lot of patients are taking it to get those levels up to where they need to be, so that is n another really common supplement. Well, Amy, it was it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. I really enjoyed reading your book, Beat the Heart Attack thank Gene. You. Um, thank you. Can I... Can I 
ask you to, one thing that I want to mention to people is that this book is written to the public. Um, there's patient stories in here that each scientific concept is articulated through a patient story, and I don't want people to be afraid to read it. Um, I don't want them to think it's too technical, and it really is written to the public. The evidence is there. It's all fully referenced, um, which is good. But our hope is that people read this book, the public, take the information into their medical provider and ask for these tests. Um, we want. Thanks, Amy. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to cut you off because we're out of time, but it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much. 